on this episode of Omnivore, what American consumers will be eating this year and why, the role of chefs in building a better food system, and the underappreciated connection between soil health and nutrition. This is Omnivore from the editors of Food Technology Magazine and the Institute of Food Technologists. This episode of Omnivore is brought to you by IFT's Global Food Traceability Center. Get ahead of FDA's Food Traceability Rule compliance deadline with the Enterprise Traceability Education Suite, your unbiased source for comprehensive traceability training. Learn more at ift.org traceability. Welcome to Omnivore from IFT and Food Technology, where we explore the intersection of business, science, and technology in the global food system. I'm Bill McDowell. Trends consultant Dr. Liz Sloan prefers to think of 2024 as the new not-so-normal. She says the pressures of price inflation, back-to-the-office work schedules, and health concerns have changed consumers' eating patterns in some major ways. In this conversation with Food Technologies' Mary Ellen Kuhn, she breaks out the key consumer market drivers for the year ahead and identifies the opportunities they offer for food and beverage marketers. Liz, in your February Food Tech Magazine feature, you discuss the not-so-normal consumer trends. So what do you think is the single biggest change in consumer behavior that we should watch for in 2024? I think the this just-in-time mindset, I'm going to call it, where consumers have to continually reevaluate their food and beverage criteria. And it changes sometimes by the day. And right now, it's kind of changing for a lot of people almost as the day goes along, depending when they go into a store or something. And they, they've become a moving target. And they've become very, very micro-focused on the moment. And I think for, for marketers, that's going to be a real, a real challenge. What's influencing it? If you think about it, obviously price is still a big issue for a large part of the population. The, the cost of, uh, on average of a food product is 26% higher than last year, 33% higher than the year before. So there's a lot of juggling because of, because of that sticker shock at fast food restaurants when you go in there. You know, back to work is back to work. So we have time pressures that we haven't really had for a while. That's a big influence. But I think there's three quick trends that I think are really going to go center stage this year. The first one is food, the food experiences. It's now among the top reasons for food, for food choice. And that's kind of new. And that's very exciting. You could do all kinds of new flavors and new cuisines and whatever. The second thing is multifunctional products. You know, when things are tight, especially young people are very concerned about buying their $4 organic beverage that that they were so used to having. Multifunctional becomes a very big idea. It doesn't matter if, if you're interested in the environment, a secondary claim on the environment will help make a decision on the product purchase. And that's kind of new. And I think the third thing, I love this one, is going ready to eat. Because if you think about it, people under 40 years old are really buying food that's already prepared or very, very much prepared, let's put it that way. Where when you go over 40, people are still 
putting things together, preparing their food. And I think that's going to be a really big shift this year. And we're going to really start to see it between the restaurants and the retail manufacturers. Could you talk a little bit more about that, like what that what that shift will be? That's a really good question, because it depends, I think, how restaurants are going to respond in a lot of these cases. So we see them buying more prepared foods in the deli case. We see, uh, you know, one in four dinners, restaurant dinners last year were replaced with prepared foods. We see them using restaurant foods as, as maybe one item in the dinner, and they just assemble it. And they're not as enamored with cooking, despite what we see on, on TikTok, as that they were maybe kind of a little bit of burnout from, from two years ago on that. Well, let's talk a little bit about the future of eating at home, because you're referring to that. And that is, as you noted, a trend that started during the pandemic. People were cooking and eating more at home. And then in the past year, it was affected by inflation with people eating more often at home for price reasons. What do you see for the future of eating out versus eating at home? That's the $20 million question, let me tell you. But I think it's really exciting to me. I think right now we're going to see this higher level of eating at home, if we will, or uh, whether we prepare it or take it there, whatever, continuing. It, right now, the shift in retail versus restaurant dollars is really shifted towards retail. It's 60% versus 40%. I think the game is who finds the new balance is what's going to be really the winner here. Restaurants offer an experience, okay? Experiences in food as a driver for food selection is new. And so they win right there. Consumers will go back to restaurants when they can afford it. And I, to what degree remains to be seen. But, you know, that's a given. Restaurants aren't going away. But I think if you think about restaurants, almost three quarters, 74 percent of all restaurant sales are off premise. And they're either going home or to the office or eating in the car. But that that's a big number. So what's going on if one in four foods, uh, restaurant foods last year were replaced by uh, prepared foods that people are buying at the deli? So I think that this is the question. Over half of people are trying to make restaurant foods at home. 60% are buying restaurant take it, takeout, but they're fixing it up. Maybe part of that question is how do restaurants take their takeout beyond fast foods? And how do they make it more desirable for the consumer? They certainly have the talent to do so. And then how does the traditional food industry and retailers beat them to it? And it's, as simply as that's put, I think that's, that's the opportunity here. Well, you talked about something else that I found really interesting. I liked your term of physiology claims for food. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Physiology claims, and I don't think anybody's really technically defined them, but to me, their food is medicine claims aimed at the underlying physiological cause um, or the ability to prevent some of the chronic conditions that we're all concerned about, like heart or whatever. So things like metabolism support, we hear a lot of that right now with the weight loss market, blood sugar control to help control and prevent different forms of diabetes, support of the microbiome itself 
not the probiotics or the prebiotics. Acid reflux. We've seen the new coffees coming out with low acid coffees and pasta sauces. Pain and anxiety. It's a very frightening thing to a lot of consumers when you're in the supplement market. But as it moves into food, and there's a lot of natural solutions for it, even, you know, caffeine for energy has, is a perfect example, and sound sleep. And according to Nielsen, every one of the ones I just mentioned, Nielsen IQ, every one of the ones I've just mentioned has outperformed the food and beverage category in terms of sales over the last four years. Well, you also talked in the article about consumers opting for a food solution, a healthful food solution, a functional food solution from food versus from a supplement. What do you think is driving that? It's very interesting. And I think it's been quietly going on for quite some time, really. And this whole food is medicine, uh, superfood movement has really thrown it out into the, to the spotlight. But just as an example, in the past two years, eight in 10 people are turning for immune boosting support to food and beverages as opposed to supplements. And that's like almost a complete flip since before the pandemic started. And, and sales of immunity claim, foods with an immunity claim over the last two years are up 60% and supplements are only up 8%. So we are seeing these shifts, not everywhere, but in, in a lot of major categories, probably the, the most familiar would be the energy category as we see it going from many things in powders and, and everything else in the supplement world right into the food industry. And of course, it's one of the largest and fastest growing food categories out there. We're seeing it in the heart area, digestive issues. You know, we have the prebiotic carbonated sodas out with a big rage right now, mood, cognitive and mental, all of things and calming, you know, food is playing quite a role in the calming supplement area. So I think those are some of the key categories that have really transcended from supplements into food. And I think, again, the, the superfoods drove it. I think believability in food is, as medicine is so high and it jumped 22% last year again. Uh, globally, it's like 55% of all people are using some sort of functional food and you know, have believe in its features. You know, it's less expensive than a lot of supplements when you think about it. A lot of people think, obviously, its use in food is much safer. Liz Sloan is president of consulting company Sloan Trends Incorporated and a food technology contributing editor. You can read more of her take on what will be driving consumers' 2024 food and beverage choices in our February issue. We'll be back with more Omnivore in a moment. But first, this word from our sponsor. Empower your business to reduce the negative impacts of recalls with IFT's new one-stop resource, the Enterprise Traceability Education Suite. Known for its impartiality, IFT's Global Food Traceability Center developed the comprehensive Enterprise Traceability Education Suite as the only education solution designed to quickly help get your entire organization up to speed on key traceability concepts. Get practical steps to designing an effective and cost-efficient traceability program. 
With IFT's Enterprise Traceability Suite, you save valuable time and money in preparing for FDA's traceability rule, January 2026 compliance deadline. Find out more at ift.org traceability. Welcome back to Omnivore. I'm Bill McDowell. Celebrity chef Spike Mendelson is a man on a mission. Multiple missions, actually. To advocate for an equitable food system, to help save the planet, and to show food service consumers that plant-based burgers really can be delicious. Associate editor Emily Little recently chatted with Spike about how chefs can use their voices for positive change in the food system and how he uses his plant burger restaurant concept as a conduit for planet-friendly eating. Spike, thank you so much for talking to me today. I'm really excited about this. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be here and a good way to start off the new year. So Absolutely. So I want to start by talking about Plant Burger. Can you tell me a bit about how this adventure started and how you're making these burgers so appealing to customers? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Venture started, you know, uh, I met Seth Goldman, which was the chair of Beyond Meat. And we were on a panel together at George Washington University about advocacy in the climate. And, and um, you know, we kind of spurred up a relation, you know, relationship there. He introduced me literally to the Beyond Meat burger. So, yeah, so the challenge for me is after I came uh, across Beyond Meat is if I can create a 100% plant-based burger that is as indulgent and as delicious as any other burger out there. And so I had to research about other plant-based ingredients like cheese or mayonnaise, for instance, and all these other different items. And, you know, innovation back when I was creating this was, it wasn't like it was today. And, and it's just such a short amount of time. It's just five years, but there has been a lot of innovation in the last five years. So, you know, I was just able to create something that was just delicious. And, uh, you know, I said, well, wow, what a proposition, you know, uh, indulgent, greasy burger, that is good for you, good for the planet, has all these benefits. So uh, yeah, it was uh, that's how we created Plant Burger. I love what you said about creating that greasy burger. That's such a unique experience and something that, you know, we all want from our fast food. Yeah, absolutely. You know, like, you know, my mother always told me like people, you never could re- reinvent the wheel when it comes to people's foods. We're very creatures of habit. You know, we love burgers. America loves burgers. It loves fast food on top of it. It loves all sorts of dining. Do you know, do you know what I mean? But if we can make the fast food sector better for you, better for the environment, I think it's a win-win, right? Why wouldn't you have that burger over one that is potentially damaging the planet and is, you know, farming is, is with these monopolized uh, industries? So it's just, a, it's, it's kind of, a, it's a fun space to be in right now. So you're also entering the CPG space with Eat the Change. Can you talk a bit about how that brand aligns with your mission of planet-friendly eating? Yeah, Eat the Change was is exactly what the statement was. It's the idea behind it is, is that the most effective change you can have on the planet is your own environmental footprint, you know, your own person, and and that really comes down to how you operate and interact with the world, you know? So meaning, again, no one's perfect. I'm a flexitarian. I'm not a vegan. But what, what I am doing is I'm just a conscious consumer, right? I try to be as much as a conscious consumer as I can be. And for me, that's enough, right? And I can, you know, I can get better. But the idea is, is like, you know, you, you can have effective changes with yourself where you put your dollars on, where you spend your money on, on the food, the types of food you buy 
types of clothes you buy, the types of cars you drive. You know, we're, we're seeing like this shift in the world a little bit with these items that make up our daily lives, whether it's our, a phone or a car or what have you, what you're eating. And those are all choices you make as a, as a human being. So yes, of course, you can vote every couple of years, four years for elective officials, cross your fingers, hope they make the difference that you're looking to see in the world. And, and that's never um, a sure bet. What is, is, is your own involvement and interaction with the rest of the world. That's Eat the Change. So we, what we do is we create snacks that give you the opportunity to invest in snacks that are clean label or organic. We don't use any cane sugars. So a lot of the ingredients sometimes are fair trade, for instance, are just iced tea. Big shirt I'm wearing right here is 100% organic and, and fair trade of tea leaves, fair trade agave. So there's a lot of give back. So these two concepts are fantastic because there's a lot, a lot of advocacy that is intertwined with them. And they're just fun concepts to work with. So. Why do you think it's important to use your role as a chef to advocate for the food system? I think chefs are, are the heart of the food industry. You know, we, uh, like I was saying, was we accept food. We're always talking about farmers, distributors. We cook food, we store food, we serve food. So we're very close to it. And people all over the world and country, they trust us when they walk into our restaurant. So... And one would think that they would trust us when it comes to important issues like the farm bill and things that we need to kind of fix and improve on. So for me, chefs and advocacy the last 10 years has been a you know great part of my life where I've been able to really talk about the importance of paying attention to the farm bill, how we do food aid and, and you know how we can fix the food system. I've done that locally by food policy chairman for Mayor Bowser's uh, DC Food Policy Council for the last seven years. I just termed out last year, and uh, and I also do that globally with CARE as one of the lead chef advocates for, for their programs, Chef's Table. So, yeah, it's it's a very important issue, and, uh, you know, my goal is to inspire chefs to, to do more. I just, I just launched something called the Cooks Collective, which is inspiring chefs to, uh, you know, take on advocacy both for their own mental health and well-being for uh, the ones with their employees to educate them, uh, you know, what they could do in their industry. So it's been great. That's fantastic. In your opinion, what do you think it will take for our food system to be more equitable? You know, I think it's going to have to take really looking at food, not as a privilege and looking at it as a human right and taking that, um, just that sole idea of it and activating that through all the systems that we have set up, right? It's really, it's unfortunate that, you know, there's people that are walking around right now that don't know where their next bill is going to come from or that there's kids in certain countries around the world that are starving or even in our, our own country, kids are starving or malnutrition, you know, are, are being guided to eat the wrong food. So I think we just, you know, I think and that's why this uprising of chefs and advocacy has been really fantastic to see. It's very young. Core, it's only been a decade plus years here that chefs have been involved in this and talking about it. But I think it's what it takes to really to kind of do this. So that's fantastic. I love what you said about food as a right. You know, everyone has the right to access to clean and healthy food, not just little scraps. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Well, Spike, thank you so much for talking to me today and good luck in the future. Thank you so much. Again, have a great year and hopefully we chat soon again. Ciao.
Spike Mendelson is a CIA-trained chef, cookbook author, and television personality based in Washington, D.C., and the founder of the Plant Burger restaurant chain. You can check out more of Emily's conversation with Spike in the February issue of Food Technology. We just heard from Spike Mendelson how plant-based foods continue to be a hot topic in the food industry. But for Bob Bielman, it's nothing new. He spent the better part of his career as an academic researcher studying the health and nutritional impact of plants. In a new Dialogue Perspective essay, Bielman argues that conventional agriculture practices driven by efficiency are having unintended consequences on the nutritional value of crops. So in your recent dialogue essay for food technology, you cited a Rockefeller Foundation report that suggests that the actual cost of our food is about three times what consumers actually pay, particularly in terms of environmental and nutritional costs. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Right. Well, in that study, they had a lot of economic analyses and whatever, but they claim that Americans spend $1.1 trillion on food, but when they added everything up with environmental costs and costs to the healthcare system, it came out to be $3.2 trillion. And there's a lot of evidence that our food supply leads to the development of chronic diseases. And in fact, the CDC did a recent study that 6 out of 10 Americans are trying to manage a chronic condition. Things like diabetes, heart disease, cancer, a lot of uh, new situation with dementia, Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's disease that really are escalating to the point where, you know, this could bankrupt us if we don't get a handle on it. So one of the things that you write about is that there's always been a historical agricultural trade-off, right, between crop yield and nutritional quality, how significant is the impact of traditional ag practices, and especially when it comes to things like micronutrients, like ergothionine? I've been at Penn State now, it'll be 54 years in April. And one of the things I've noticed over the years is the all of the research effort that goes into how we can produce more food more efficiently, and very little on what's actually happening to the food or what's in the food. There's some, but it's it's minuscule compared to all the efforts. We now have huge farms and they're very efficient, large equipment, a lot of technology involved, but not much interest in uh, in the nutrient density of the food. In fact, I you know, I saw this in my experience with working with mushrooms where when I first started the yield was like two to three pounds per square foot. That's of a compost surface area. And now it's about nine. Hmm. And during that time, I noticed that the major flavor component of mushrooms was being reduced significantly. And I brought this up to the mushroom growers. And basically they said to me, you know, we really don't care because we're paid by pounds and nobody wants to know whether there's, um, and that was a shock to me. And even some of the researchers that I was dealing with, you know, basically blew it off as uh, it's not important. So the nutrient density is something that's now gain, gaining interest. In fact, I'm involved with a project with the Rodale 
people, the, uh, the Rodale Institute, the organic food movement, that they got a big grant from the Foundation for Food and Agriculture Research to study the effect of ag practices on the nutrient density of wheat. And they knew what I was doing with the ergothionine, and they decided that that would be something they would want to include. So it's mainly based on protein, effects on protein, which we found is, is decreasing in wheat as the yields are increasing, and uh, the ergothionine. So talk a little bit more about ergo and, and, and you know, what are the benefits of it? What are the implications of having a, a deficiency in the, you know, Bruce Ames effectively called it a longevity vitamin uh, and links its deficiency to premature aging, to chronic diseases. Talk a little bit more about its impact and, and how does the modern diet fare in terms of ergo levels? What's interesting is the ergothionine was discovered back in 1909, but nothing was really done with it until about the 1950s. Some researchers found that it was found in high levels in blood of both animals and humans, and uh, they traced it to the diet of the animals uh, and, and the humans. And what they discovered was ergothionine is present in the, in the blood of all mammals, but humans especially, at very high levels, millimolar quantities, which is very, uh, very high. And then back in 2005, a German pharmacologist discovered that all mammals make a genetically coded, very highly specific, efficient transporter, which within, and we did, we showed this in some of our say, within an hour of consuming food with ergo in it, it's into your red blood cells. Hmm. And then it's transported around the, the body and it collects in in high levels in all of the tissues that are under the most oxidative stress. And of course, oxidative stress is one of the major contributors to disease, uh, that and inflammation. And people have discovered that ergo is both an, a potent antioxidant, but also a uh, anti-inflammatory agent. So it's something that connects with both of the causes of chronic disease. There's a big project, people working in Singapore, very well-known researchers in the area of oxidative stress and whatever, and they showed that as people age, the ergo level drops significantly, but it drops more significantly or rapidly in people with chronic diseases. And they discovered this first with people with uh, mild cognitive impairment, and then uh, also it was discovered with Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease. So uh, that's when I became really interested in, 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 in the situation here because I was wondering whether Americans are, are consuming enough ergo to lead to proper health. And we actually got started working with ergothionine with mushrooms because mushrooms is a fungus. It's made primarily in nature by fungi and mu mushrooms are a fungus and a big concentration of it. But little was known, but it was known to be in, in most every food item, but in very low levels. So I became interested in this, and uh, I was able to find some work that actually documented how much ergo is consumed by Americans and four other countries. And interesting enough, as I manipulated their data and calculated in milligrams per day, the Americans consume 1.1 milligram per day, the lowest of all five countries, and Italy was 4.6. Hmm. So then I decided, uh, is there anything I can show uh, from data of how that's affecting chronic disease. And sure enough, you can get these kind of figures on the effects of uh, in, in, you know, chronic diseases in various countries. So I plotted these out and 
the uh, Americans, for example, had the lowest life expectancy of those five countries, and Italy had the highest, and, it, and there was a nice spread in between. And then uh, we, I found that there was an inverse relationship between herb consumption and chronic diseases. In, in, in this case, it was uh, Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease. Now, th these data are associations. It doesn't prove a cause and effect relationship. And, um, but when you see this kind of thing, you say to yourself, wow, uh, this needs to be checked out, whether there's a, something going on here. And we're finding out that, that this relationship continues to hold. I added Japan to the data set, and I estimated the Japanese consumed about 6.6 .6 milligrams per day. And they have the highest life expectancy now of those six countries and the lowest rates of these two diseases. So it kind of adds to the, to the evidence. There's now gaining you know, a lot of scientific people interested in looking into this. In fact, the rate of uh, publications on ergothionine is growing exp exponentially now. So let's go back to this connection uh, with agriculture, because your research indicates that excessive tillage, for example, reduces the ergo levels in crops. Are there other conventional agriculture practices that are affecting overall soil health and consequently the nutritional value of the crops that are, are being grown? Right. The, the way I got interested in this was the fact that we know that almost all ergo is, is produced by fungi. There's a few bacteria that make it. And then I began to wonder if um, the way we grow our food might be affecting the fungi in the soil. And I contacted the soil microbiologist on campus and I said, is there you know, any idea, evidence about that? And, and I remember she said, oh, absolutely, we know that. So then I got to thinking, wow, I wonder if what we're doing in farming is affecting this fungi in the soil and therefore the amount that gets into the food supply. It took a couple of years, but we had this relationship with Rodale and they had some plots where they were doing tillage versus no tillage. And we found that definitely crops grown on tilled soils had about 30% less ergo than uh, crops grown on untilled soils. In this case, it was oats. And then luckily I ran into a colleague and I told him about the tillage thing. And he said, well, that's interesting because Penn State has a tillage study that's been going on since 1978 where they're investigating effective tillage, uh, plowing versus two levels of, uh, uh, of no-till and two levels of tillage. And so I hooked up with him and we were able to show with three crops in three successive years, it was corn, soybeans, and oats, that tillage definitely reduced the amount of ergo in the um, crops by about 30, 35%. And, um, since then, we've done it with a couple more years. In fact, last year, uh, we, it was done with wheat, and we found that uh, no-till wheat had all, uh, more than 100% more ergo than the uh, wheat grown with full tillage. So the other thing is we now have this regenerative agricultural movement, and, and no-till is the biggest part of it. But they also advocate multiple crop rotations, rather than just corn, soybeans, corn, soybeans, or whatever, which is the normal. Uh, and the use of cover crops, where they plant a cover crop during the winter, because most conventional farms, the, the soil is left bare in the winter. And uh, 
the reduction in the use of chemicals. And all four of these things are known to negatively affect the fungal populations in the soil. So, for example, when you have a cover crop, it tends to provide food for the fungi in the soil. You get more fungi. Some chemicals disrupt the, the fungi in the soil. In fact, even fertilization, nitrogen fertilization is highly negative to the fungi in the soil. Unfortunately, we've only been able to study tillage. But we want to study, you know, these other things, because if you add them all together, the effect on the ergo and the spoosphalite could be huge. So what do you think going forward is the appropriate role or the desired role for food scientists, whether they're in academia or industry or even government or nonprofit channels to contribute to this? Well, what I've been trying to do is get the food industry and people I know in the food industry aware of what's going on here. Most people have never heard of ergothionine. And that's why we call it ergo, to make it simplified a little bit. And so there's the, a lack of awareness with this and probably other micronutrients that are, in the, that are in the food supply. So I think the food industry should encourage research and whatever, looking into the situation of, is our food supply compromised by the amount of ergothionine that's present? And if it is, then that's probably having a negative effect on our, on our health. Robert Bielman is Professor Emeritus of Food Science and Director of the Center for Plant and Mushroom Foods for Health at Pennsylvania State University. You can read his full dialogue essay in the February issue of Food Technology. IFT members can join an online discussion about the soil-health-nutrition connection in our IFT Connect member portal. to this episode's sponsor, IFT's Global Food Traceability Center. Get ahead of FDA's Food Traceability Rule January 2026 compliance deadline with the Enterprise Traceability Education Suite, your one-stop resource for comprehensive traceability training. Empower your workforce with this efficient and cost-effective training tool at www.ift.org traceability. And that wraps up this episode of Omnivore. Thanks again to all our guests and my colleagues at Food Technology. Omnivore is produced and distributed by the Institute of Food Technologists. If you enjoyed today's show and want to learn more about Food Technology Magazine or how to join the conversation by becoming an IFT member, visit ift.org membership. For more in-depth discussion about innovation in the science of food, Check out IFT's other podcast, SciDish, on the news and publications page of IFT.org. If you have comments or suggestions for future shows, just send us an email. The address is editors at IFT.org. For the entire team at Food Technology and IFT, I'm Bill McDowell. Thanks for listening, and join us again for our next episode. This is Omnivore.